My name's Andrew, I'm part of the team here. And uh, this evening we're going to carry on uh, in our series entitled The Songs for Summer, where we're looking at various psalms in the book of Psalm. And uh, so this evening, I just want to really dive into what I want to say. So if you have uh, your Bibles, you do just turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. This is a great, great psalm. We could spend weeks and weeks picking out some stuff in this psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though a war breaks out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the days of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Oh, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your ways, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. You know, before we really dive in onto this psalm, I just want to sort of paint a bit of the, the background to it, because to really fully understand this psalm, I think we need to understand the context in which it is written. It's generally accepted, but not exclusively accepted, but it's generally accepted that David wrote this psalm after his son Absalom conspired against him. Absalom had previously, as if you know the story, Absalom had previously killed uh, his brother, who had in turn uh, committed an awful offence of rape uh, with uh, uh, Absalom's sister. And as a result of that, David banished him from the land. But eventually David relented and allowed Absalom back into the land and into Jerusalem. But for four years, Absalom undermined David's standing with the people through political intrigue, through slander, through, you know, sleight of hand. He undermined David's position in the land, and it says he turned the people against David. Absalom, in fact, eventually forced David to leave Jerusalem, and there, Absalom usurped his father's throne. In fact, during that time, after he usurped the throne, he totally humiliated his father, David, by sleeping with his father's concubines. And not only did he sleep with his father's concubines, he did it in the full view of Israel. Absalom was not a nice man. He really wasn't. And David wrote this psalm when he was on the run, when he had been betrayed by his son, even though he had previously shown mercy to him. 
Yet this psalm, when I read it, is not a self-pitying psalm. It's not a psalm of fear. It's not a psalm that says, oh, Lord, help me out of a very difficult situation I'm in. No, it seems to me, as I read it, it's a psalm of confidence. Verse 3, David says this, even if war breaks out against me, even then will I be confident. Later on in the psalm, after a bit of a wobble in the, in the middle of the psalm, he ends up by saying things like this, I am still confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I loved it. What he was saying, listen, I'm not just going to see the goodness of God when I get to heaven. I'm going to see the goodness of God in the midst of the circumstances that I am currently in. Even though I'm on the run, I'm still going to believe that I'm going to see the goodness of God in the midst uh, uh, of my circumstances. What a great confidence David had in his God. Where did David get that confidence from? Because I don't know about you, but I want that confidence. Now, I want to say, David's confidence was not a superficial confidence. It wasn't actually based upon the fact that David's personality was perhaps outgoing. It wasn't even based upon the fact that he was a great leader. At that point in time, I suspect he felt that he wasn't very good as a leader. It wasn't based on the fact that he had a great army behind him, nor most of the people stayed back in Jerusalem and supported Absalom. It wasn't because things were going well in his life that he was confident. Things were going awfully badly for David at this point in time. No, his confidence was much deeper than this sort of stuff. His confidence was not based on a, uh, on a situation. It wasn't based on his charisma. It wasn't based on his IQ. His confidence flowed out of a deep personal relationship with his God. It was an overflow, if you like, of David getting close up and personal with God. And he knew God so well that he knew that no matter what happens, no matter what circumstances he's in, God would be there with him in the midst. His confidence was not the result of the absence of problems, but rather the, he was convinced that even in the most difficult of circumstances, God's presence would be with him in the midst. Do you know it's easy, isn't it? To imagine God's presence with us when everything is going really well. When there's, there's no clouds at all on the horizon. But David was confident of this. That even in his most difficult situation that he was currently in, God would be there with him. That was what his confidence was based on. You know, bad things happen to good people. You know good people that have, have, have suffered bad things. You know, we live in a fallen, broken, messed up world. And because of that, we're not immune to some of the stuff that goes off in the world around us, are we? I suspect there might well be some here this evening who might well be sort of suffering from some medical issues that perhaps only you know about, but you're struggling with. Perhaps there are people sitting in these, in these chairs this evening that are suffering from problems to do with relationships and family. Perhaps there's people sitting in these chairs this evening that sort of are struggling really with heavy-duty financial problems and, and they look into the future and, and they can't see anything but, but for bleakness and darkness. And you know, it's so easy in those circumstances to get worried, to get anxious, become afraid and to lose your confidence in God. But before we go any further in what I have to say, I want to say to you this evening that we have a Father in heaven who knows our suffering. He's not immune to it. He feels it. He's conscious of it. He's not indifferent to it. He's touched by our infirmities. We have a God who wants to meet us with all that he is in the sufferings that we're going through. 
in all the troubles, he wants to meet us with all that he is. Not with the kind of God that sometimes we have in our head when we're actually in trouble. No, God wants to meet with us with all that he is in the midst of our problems. That's David's confidence. That's what it was. Do you know, we need such confidence because God has called us to take risks. God has called us not to conform, but to change the world that we live in. God has called us to be overcomers. God has called us to be more than conquerors. The word actually is hyper-conquerors. God has called us to do great exploits. You know what? You can't do this if we lack confidence in our God. You can be the most competent, capable individual in this room. But you know what? If you lack confidence, then the chances are you'll never step out to use the competences that God has given you. David understood the, the, desire, uh, the need uh, to have confidence in his life. That's why in Hebrews it says this, do not throw away your confidence. And then it goes on and says this, because it will be richly rewarded to you. You know, we need to be a people who are confident in our God. And I want to just notice uh, under the first heading, three divine qualities that David attributed to his God that inspired confidence in him, even when he was in that situation of actually being on the run, having and his throne usurped by his uh, son Absalom. And we find these three uh, uh, attributes referred to in verse one of that psalm. It says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Even in the most difficult situations, David still could say, the Lord is my light. In those situations, David, if you like, had a divine light to guide him. David was in a very dark place at that point in time. His throne had been lost to his son. His, his, his kingship had been usurped by him. I suspect that he had no idea of what the next step would be. I suspect that he was crying out to God, God, show me the next step. Show me the next step. I suspect that he must have thought to himself, you know, why is this happening to me? You know, why me, God? You know, I'm the one that you chose to be king. Why, why, why is this all happening to me? I don't know about you, but I've been there a few times, haven't you? You know, you're crying out to God, you know, God, I can't understand what's happening. Why is this happening to me? I'm confused by the circumstances that I find myself in. I'm shocked by the situation that I'm being confronted with. And, and, and I just don't know what to do. I've looked at it from all kinds of angles and I still don't know what to do. I feel a bit like a rabbit in front of a car's head with headlights coming on, coming right at me. I know I should move, I know I should do something, but I'm paralyzed, I just don't know what to do. I've been in that situation several times. When in that situation, I don't know of you, but I need the light of God. I need the light of God to dispel some of the confusion that I'm going through. In Psalm 119 and verse 105, it says this, the Lord says this, uh, the word says this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know, when we walk through this world, God promises us one thing, that he will be the light in our life. Now, in Bible times, when the, when the place got dark, they didn't have massive lights like this that sort of, you know, shone brightly. All they actually had was a, if you like, a sort of simple pottery lamp with a single wick in and a single flame. 
That's all they had in the darkness. And if you walk with a single pottery lamp, uh, all you can see is about, you know, one tread, one footstep ahead of you. That's all the light that they had. So when, when we read that scripture, you know, you're a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, you know, what we need to realize is that what's being said there is that God will be our light, but sometimes he will only give us, if you like, a pottery lamp's worth of light. And, but he expects us to walk into that. He expects us to believe that he will show us the next step once we've actually stepped into that. That's what it says there. Do you know, I remember once in my last church, and um, I was responsible for planting out some churches, and, and it came to a point where I really needed uh, to buy a building. And uh, we got to about 30 or 40, and we really wanted to buy a building. We wanted a place to call our home. We were stuck in a tatty sixth form common room, and it was just not good. Um, but, you know, nothing ever came up in this little village called Earthling Borough. But one day, two venues came up. One was a, an old, dilapidated co-op that hadn't been used for about 20 years. But it was a big building on a big piece of land. But another building came up, and it was bigger than what we needed, but not as big as the co-op, and we could have walked right into it. Now, I was totally confused. I was praying, God, show me, you know, which way I need to go. Give me a bit of light here. I'm confused. I need your light in a situation. And I, and I can remember God speaking to me on that day very clearly. Now, I was tempted to just flick through the word of God trying to find, you know, a nice easy answer. But I, re I resisted that and I stayed with my reading pattern. And I was reading to, through the Second, King, uh, Second Kings but I also knew in my head, because I'd read 2 Kings several times, that 2 Kings 6, which is the next bit of, of scripture that I was going to read, had nothing at all to do with buying and selling churches. In fact, if you remember, 2 Kings 6 is all about the axe head going down in the water and, and Elisha coming up and doing a miracle and the axe head floats. And I thought, oh God, there's nothing there, but I need your light. And then I started reading it. And you know, the light just turned on. Listen to what verse 1 says. The company of the prophet said to Elisha, look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Well, that immediately got my attention. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole and let us build a place there for us to live. And it was just that little phrase, build a place. One of the buildings that I was looking at was already built. It was perfect. We could have just moved into it. The other one was totally dilapidated. But God spoke to me in that moment. He cast some light in my confusion. He said, Andrew, buy the co-op. He didn't literally say buy the co-op. But he said, but, but what he actually said is, that's the building. You need to build that. Now, I tell you, I didn't have a clue how I was going to build it. I went back to the leaders of the church. I said, look, guys. This is what God has said. They were spiritual men, and they just said, okay, let's go with that. And I can remember having signed the contract, standing in front of this church, and saying to myself, well, thank you, Lord, but I haven't got a clue now what the next step is, but I'm confident of this. You've given me a little sort of pottery lamp's worth of light to buy it, and I'm trusted in you to give me the next step of a little pottery lamp worth of life so I know what to do next. And you know what? That's what he did. And miraculously, that church building was built. In our confusion, we need to realize that we are children of the light. In our confusion, we need to realize that the light of the world is living in us. That God doesn't want to leave us in darkness. He doesn't want to leave us confused at all. If you're struggling in your difficulties at the moment and you lack a bit of light, why didn't you just ask God to turn on the light? 
turn on the light, give me a bit of revelation. But don't expect him to show you sort of, you know, two or three years of worth of light down the road. Be content with a little pottery lamp's worth of light. Step out in that. Do you know what? God wants to develop our faith, and that's how he does it. David understood this principle, and he was confident that even though he was on a run, uh, uh, and he was in a, a very difficult situation, and perhaps he didn't know what to do, he was trusting in God to come through, because God was his light. Secondly, I want to say this. David also believed that not only was God was his light in, that cir- in those circumstances, but God was his salvation. Actually, in, this, in the scripture, the word for salvation there is Jeshua. Uh, it's the Hebrew name for Jesus. It's a word that spoke of God's ability to save and deliver people from harm. That's what it spoke of. See, David, even in that difficult situation that he was in, he didn't fall back on himself. He didn't fall back on the resources that he had. No, he was confident of this, that his deliverer, Jeshua, would actually come in and deliver him out of that situation. We had a a guy in in my school, and his name was Martin. Now, Martin was the school wimp, but also, paradoxically, the school bully. Now, those two things never often go together, do they? But the difference, really, um, with Martin was this. He had a big brother. Now, his brother was the school hard man. His brother was a bit of a psychopath. Uh, His brother was called Fence. Now, we don't know for sure why his name was Fence, but the rumor was it that he was expelled in his last school because he got hold of a fence post and hit a school teacher with it. And so he was nicknamed Fence. So no one touched Martin, even though he was weak, even though he was an awkward customer, because if you touched him, then you'd have to deal with fence, and you didn't want to deal with fence. Mind you, as soon as fence left school, people wrought their revenge, put it that way, on poor little Martin. I want to remind us tonight that unlike fence, we have a brother who sticks closer to us than anyone else, and his name is Jesus. We have a brother who is not a psychopath, who is not kind of indifferent to our plight. We have, a, we, have a, we have a father God who loves us, who is gracious to us, who wants to do us good. And he is bigger and stronger than any fence. In fact, he's bigger and stronger than any circumstances or any problem or any person or any spiritual forces or any medical condition or any situation that you currently find yourself in. He is much stronger than any one of those. He's bigger and better than anything that you are currently facing. David knew this, and that's why he was confident. Even in, the, even in the difficult situation that he was in, he knew that his God was his savior. Thirdly, David was confident in his situation because not only did he know God as, as his savior, not only did he know God as his light, but he knew God as his stronghold. David had a stronghold to protect him. And that stronghold was Jesus. Do you know, sometimes Jesus shows us the way out of things. He casts some light into a confused situation. Sometimes he sort of delivers us out of things like he did with David and Goliath. You know, he delivered David out of a very tricky situation. But sometimes he keeps us safe in the midst of the troubles that we are in. 
Now, Wales, as you know, is, is a majestic, beautiful place, you know, and has a great football team. And, uh, but one thing it's not famous for is for the glorious, sunny climate that it enjoys. You ask anybody that's just done those three peaks, they'll tell you that. I remember we had a family holiday in a place called Tenby. We were really living it up that year. Uh, we stopped in a static caravan right on the cliff side of, of the beach at Tenby. And uh, right next to it was a massive tree with big thick branches that came across over the top of the caravan and slightly over the front of the caravan. And for three days we had fantastic weather. And we used to shade uh, under this tree, we used to have you know, our, our, our picnics outside. But on the third day, in fact the third night, uh, the weather turned and the, as a massive gale and storm was whipped up right along the coastline and it tore up the coast of Tenby Bay and it hit our caravan. I, it must have been the only caravan that it hit because it hit it with such force that it moved us to the left and then it moved us to the right and the tree that was once providing us with shade started banging on the top of our caravan. Now this was midnight, you know, banging on the top of the caravan, hitting the side of the caravan. Both myself and Amanda, we were frightened. We thought, this is it. This caravan is going to go tumbling down the cliff. Our two children were fast asleep in bed. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, uh, but we were frightened. And the problem was that we were in the midst of a storm, but all we had was a tatty, flimsy, static caravan that had seen its better days. Imagine for a moment if we were in an underground, bomb-proof shelter 30 foot down. I suspect that we wouldn't have even heard the storm. I suspect that we wouldn't even feel the storm. I suspect that both myself and Amanda, and not just the kids, would sleep like babies in that situation. And that's the picture that David is painting in this scripture. What he's saying is that this, Jesus is our stronghold. He's saying Jesus is the bomb-proof shelter in times of need. That's the message. No, it's not. It's actually my translation, but it's so good, I think it should be in the message. You know, he's our bomb-proof shelter in times of need. He's the rock on which we stand. He's the anchor of my soul. In Colossians, it talks about our lives being hidden with Christ in God. That word hidden there usually, is, 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 is usually refers to an underground storeroom reserved for something of treasure. Isn't that amazing? The reason that God hides us is because we are his treasure. We are the apple of his eye. He's obsessed in doing us good. And what the scripture is saying there is that as we come into Christ, you know, he keeps us safe. Because Christ is his treasure, and we are Christ's treasure. Now, I tell you what, if, you had, if, if I was a, a, a god and I had something treasure, I wouldn't put him in a static caravan on a cliff of Tenby. No, I would put him in a bomb-proof shelter 30 foot down. That's exactly what the scripture is saying here. We are safe and protected in the storm because we are treasured by our God. David elsewhere says this, you rescued me because he delighted in me. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? I want to say over you this evening, God is delighted with you. He delights in you. You are the treasure of his heart. You are the apple of his eye. American settlers, when they first went to America and they built their homestead, what they often, had, what they often did was this. They actually sort of built their homestead and then they cleared a massive area, a massive perimeter around their homestead because they feared forest fires. Now, 
we know that a fire has to have some material to burn. And so, they, but they, they, they cleared a massive area around their homestead. And so when the forest fires came, and they often did, what happened? They would come right up to the perimeter and had to stop there because they had nothing else which they could consume. So the, home, the people in the homestead, if you like, who were in that perimeter could look out, they could see the fire, they could feel the fire, but at the end of the day, they never feared it because it could not come near them. That's amazing, isn't it? And do you know what? That picture lines up exactly with what it says in Psalm 91. Psalm 91 says this, If you make God your dwelling place, no harm will befall you. you will, a thousand may fall at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes. Do you know, when we're going through difficulties, we often see the problem, and we actually magnify the problem and imagine how it's going to work out. Often, when we can feel the problem sometimes, when the circumstances really sort of start coming into us and we feel confused and, and, and perplexed, we don't know what to do. But the Word of God tells us, if you make God your dwelling place, He will hide you because you are His greatest treasure and He delights in you. David knew all this stuff because of his personal relationship with God. So when he was in that terrible situation of losing his throne and his son betraying him, he still was confident. He could still say, even if an army came against me, even then I will be confident. I don't know about yourself, but I want some of that confidence, don't you? Listen, we also have a relationship with God, don't we? So why is it? But I'm not like David when I'm going through stuff. Why is it that I lack that supernatural divine confidence that David had? Well, the answer David actually gives us in verse 4. Let me read it to you. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to see him in his temple. Let me unpack this a little bit, because this is the secret, if you like, the source of David's confidence. First of all, I want to say this. David had a longing to gather. David had a longing to gather. What did he ask for? He said this, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David was passionate about the temple, passionate about the house of the Lord. One of the, one of the uh, Psalms he wrote, he said this, better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. He, elsewhere he says this, I rejoice when people came up to me and said, let us go up to the house of the Lord. He was passionate about the house of the Lord. He loved to gather. I believe that if David was here today, he would love to come to church. He would love to be, I think he'd be in all three meetings. I really do. I think he would have rewritten Psalm 84 and said, better is one day in the church than a thousand elsewhere. You know, we massively underestimate the potency, the privilege, and the spiritual significance and importance of gathered church. We really do. So often when we're going through difficulties, instead of running to the body of Christ, we run away from it. Instead of running to our connect group, we run away from it. Instead of running to people who can put stuff into our life, we run away from them. You know, church is a place where everyone is valued. Everyone's cherished. Everyone's cared for, irrespective of this background, irrespective of the situation that they're confronted with. The church is a place where we can be inspired by the word of God, where our faith can be increased and our perseverance encouraged. Church is a place that uh, equips us for the journey, disciples us, and, and where our gifts are sharpened so that we can go out and make a difference in the world. That's the whole idea of church. 
Church is a place where we can worship corporately and lift up the majesty of Jesus to catch a revelation of who he is and then go out and be a revelation as a result of it to those who are lost. Church is a place where the weak are strengthened, the disappointed are given hope, the poor are fed, and the widows are cared for. No wonder Bill Heigl says the church is the hope of this world. But I want to say to us this evening that the church is not just the hope for the world, it's my hope, and it's your hope. It's our hope. It is, it is our hope. The church gives us the opportunity to recenter our lives around him. It's divinely put together to do us good so that we can go out and do good to others. David understood this, and he longed to gather. He longed to gather. One of the secrets about David and his confidence that he'd spent a long time in the temple with other people of like mind. So when the crisis came, he could understand fully, or partly anyway, who God was. When you go through difficulties, don't quit on church. Don't quit on your connect group. Now be like David and say, better than one day in the church than a thousand elsewhere. Another secret, I think, to David's confidence was this. Not only did he have a longing to gather, but he had a longing to gaze. When he went to church, or sorry, when he went to the temple, what did he want to do? He wasn't there just for a little bit of social fellowship. No, no, he says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek his face. That word beauty there means God's goodness, God's pleasantness, his delightfulness, his graciousness, his loveliness. David was saying, listen, I have a desire to behold God's beauty and to meditate upon it. To David, it was the richest affair to his soul. Nothing else came anywhere near it. The beauty of God's presence, the beauty of God's loveliness, the wonder of his goodness caused everything else to be slightly tacky, slightly brash, and absolutely ugly compared to the beautiful visions that he would uh, enjoy in the presence of God uh, uh, as he met with him. He wanted to meditate on the essence of God and his character. And you know what? He realized that even if he had every single day of his life in the temple, he could not plummet the depth of God's character and God's goodness. That's why he said, listen, all I want to do is spend the rest of my life you know, in God's temple, looking at his face. You know, I believe that we need to once again be captured by the beauty of our God. He wants to inspire us. And I believe as we graciously sort of come into his presence, he will challenge us and change us so that we become like him who we behold. I was struck when I was reading this scripture about Isaiah 6, you know, where, where Isaiah um, has a vision and he has a call upon his life. And in that vision, he sees many things, but he sees these massive creatures. And these creatures had six wings. And it says, with two wings, they covered their face. With two wings, they covered their feet. And the other two wings, they flew. Now, that's symbolic of lots of stuff that we can't go into uh, this evening. But, you know, he saw that. Can you imagine the impact that that must have had on his senses? But not only that, these creatures were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as they sang, he said he saw the, the, the doorposts of heaven shaken. And then he could see all the smoke coming out of the temple in heaven. I don't know about yourself, that's some kind of vision, isn't it? 
But when he records it, what does he record first? In verse 1 of Isaiah 6, he says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and his robe filled the temple. Listen, Jesus, Christ himself, outshone everything else that he saw. Jesus was the centerpiece of heaven. And you know what, friends? Jesus needs to be the centerpiece of our life. Now, I love the plans of God. I love the plans of God and the purposes of God. But you know what? I need to love him. I must give him the priority over the plans and purposes. It's the person of Jesus that saved me. It's the person of Jesus that I worship. And you know, friends, this morning, we need to capture again, a bit like David caught in his life, the wonder of studying and meditating upon the beauty of our God. The beauty of our God. Verse 4 is actually... God's invitation for us to do exactly that. The best translation of verse four goes something like this. God says to David's soul, seek my face. And David says in response to that invitation, your face, O Lord, I will seek. It's an open invitation this evening for you and I to come into the very presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he says, listen, I'm knocking on the door. If you open the door, I will come in and sup with you. I will sit and I will, and I will teach you things that you can never, ever imagine. I will share my heart with you. I will, I will give you my mind on certain circumstances. I will give you that joy and that comfort so that when you're going through difficult situations, you're of course so convinced of my love that you will stand firm. That's what we get when, when we come into the presence of God. Gathering and gazing, though, requires singleness of mind. It really does. It requires singleness of mind. One thing I ask, O oh Lord, that's all he asked. One thing I ask. Now, if I was him, if I was David, and I was in that situation that, I, that David was in, I would say, God, deliver me. Get me out. Smite my enemies down. He says, no, one thing I ask is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek his face. I don't know about yourself, but it's so easy to get distracted from the main thing. I don't know about you, but my prayer life quite often comes back on me. I'm asking this stuff for me to make my life a bit easy. You know, my prayer life often becomes very self-orientated. But you know, our primary call on our life is that we give ourselves totally unto him. That's our primary call. In Proverbs, God's cry is this, my son, give me your heart. My son, give me your heart. Do you know, I really believe that sometimes we miss out on the one thing that God wants from us because we are focused on the many things that we want from him. And God is calling us back to the one thing. Back to the one thing. That one thing that will make a difference into our lives and that's gazing on the beauty of our creator God. When we do that and receive his revelation, I want to tell you, no matter what comes our way, we will be a confident people. I listened to a preach by a guy by the name of Steve Furtick recently, and uh, he quoted from uh, Revelation 4, uh, where John had a, a revelation of heaven, and we read these words uh, spoken to John. Uh, Come up here, it says, and I will show you what must take place. And then John uh, in his vision, arrives, if you like, where he was instructed to go, and he says this, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And Steve Furtick goes on and says this, and guess what? It's not you. It's not me. It's not your boss. 
It's not, it's not the leadership of this church. It's not your medical condition. It's not your finances. You know, it's not the things that you're worried about. It's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's the risen, ascended, glorified Jesus Christ, the one who conquered death, the one who took the keys from the enemy, walked down to Hades, and actually controls all things. The hell itself is under the authority of Jesus. Hell itself. We haven't got to believe these little comic ideas that somehow or other is a little realm somewhere that the devil controls no area at all in the whole cosmos, in the whole spiritual world is controlled by anyone other than Lord Jesus Christ. He, he is the conqueror of all. And he's on the throne. And he makes an invitation to us. He throws it out to us today. Come up with me. Come up to my throne. There's a place reserved right next to me and I will speak into your life no matter what you're going through. I will reveal myself to you. Sometimes I'll reveal myself as the light. Sometimes I'll reveal to you myself as a savior. Sometimes I will reveal to you uh, myself as, as someone who's gonna protect you in difficulties. You know, when we have that kind of relationship with God, does it really matter what circumstances we're going through? Halfway through this psalm, Halfway through this psalm, David loses his focus. Instead of focusing on the beauty of God, he focuses on himself. And he begins to see himself as a sinner. And he was a sinner just like you and I. He sees himself as unworthy and begins to panic that God will somehow or other you know, remove his presence from, from David. He feels as if his confidence is sapping away. Isn't it amazing? One day you, we can be confident, the next day something happens, and what happens, you know, we lost all our confidence, don't we? You know, we're just like David, you know, just like David. But I want to ask you a simple question. When that happens, when one day we are confident, but the next day we're not confident, has the truth of who Jesus really is changed? No. Do we still have a God on the throne? We still have a God on the throne. Do we still have a God who calls us sons and daughters? Do we still have a God who declares us to be saints and heirs? Do we still have a God that forgives our sins? Do we still have a God who promises never to leave us or forsake us? Do we still have a God who is totally committed to us? Do we still have a God who cannot deny himself and therefore absolutely, totally, unconditionally loves us? I tell you what, he never changes, does he? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's the secret of our confidence that we can have no matter what we're going through that we have that kind of God who is going to be with us in the midst of our problems with all that he is. Amen. With all that he is. Now, I'm not saying that we should deny our feelings, but what I like about David is this. He was honest before God. He took his feelings to God. But I want to say this to you. He was never mastered by his feelings. He was always mastered by the truth. He was always mastered by the truth. And I sense when David said at the end, I am still despite my circumstances, perhaps even despite how I feel, I'm still confident of this. I am confident I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe there he is talking to his soul. He says, soul, live along the line of the truth. He was instructing his soul to catch up with the truth. He was instructing his inner man to say, listen, no matter how you feel, this is the truth, walk ye in it. That's what he was saying. It's not about denying his feelings, but he refused to be mastered by them. He elevated the truth over his feelings. Friends, as Christians, we walk by faith, don't we? Not by, not, by, not by feelings. What's our faith based on? Our faith is based upon the word of God, isn't it? The word of God says that this, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Our faith is rooted in truth. 
and God expects us to walk a life of truth. David knew that in the midst of all his problems, Jesus hadn't cha- uh, God had, would not change. He was still the light. He was still the savior. He was still the stronghold. And the reason that he could believe that is that he gathered regularly with others and that he stood there before his God and gazed upon his beauty. This wasn't self-talk. This was truth talk. This was not positive thinking. This was truth thinking. This was not delusion. He wasn't denying the circumstances that he was in. But for him, it was the reality of who Christ was in the midst of his problems. Remember that even on a bad day, God is still on the throne. Listen, he left the grave. He left the cross. He's never left his throne. And he's absolutely committed to you and I in the midst of our situation. He wants to be there in the middle with all that he is. I wonder if the band could come up, please. I want to ask you a question. Are you going through tough times this evening? Are you going through difficult times this evening? Do you lack the confidence of God this evening? Do you feel as if God has sort of moved away from you? I believe that is a way back. I believe that is a way by which you can reconnect to God and therefore have your confidence restored. And that's simply this. He wants you to behold him afresh so that you can become like him anew. And his invitation this evening is for you to come back. Come back into his presence. Enjoy his beauty. And I want to tell you, you will experience him in a way that you've never experienced him before, even in the midst of your problems. I'm just going to hand back to the music group now, and then I'm going to ask Angie to close